0: Wow, there's times we sing, I'm just overwhelmed by the message. Are you kidding me? Dead. Dead in sin, dead, no hope, and, and we're alive in Christ. And uh, what hope we have. I mean, amazing, amazing truth we've just sung. And, and uh, it certainly is fitting in what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, as I thought about what to speak on the, the, the week after Easter, um, what do we talk about? And, and I thought, wow, this... This passage is just so rich uh, in truth and, and really gives you and I um, confidence, which is the whole point of what Paul's writing about. So if you go to 2 Corinthians 5, I'm going to read verses 14 to 21, and then we're going to talk about them and see what uh, God has to say to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, New things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Second Corinthians, interesting context. Paul had helped start the church in Corinth. He had such a huge part of it. His preaching, his apostolic authority from Jesus uh, in the help and the formation of the, the New Testament. And uh, as the church in Corinth was formed and began to grow... Paul heard about the church, and there are some serious problems going on that developed. Uh, There was this teaching of sexual immorality, that it was okay, let it go. That church became one known for its excesses and abuses. They were suing each other. I mean, it was a free-for-all morally when it came to their corporate worship. It was out of control. Paul heard all this. His heart grieved. He wrote a very hard-edged letter to them, one of correction, Called 1 Corinthians. Paul was pretty concerned that this message would be received. Matter of fact, he was quite anxious about it. He sent the letter um, that would be hand delivered by Titus, and he kind of waited anxiously to hear back how it was received. He was relieved to find out that it was received well. Matter of fact, we're told that gar- godly sorrow had led to repentance, but not all was well. You see, there were some intruders in the church. There were those who came in and began to poison the minds of those and said, you know what, why are you listening to Paul? Why? I mean, he's got no real authority. I mean, I'm sure he had some things to say, but he hasn't even come over to deliver the letter to you. And so they began to trouble them and try to undermine the Apostle Paul's authority and what he'd been teaching. And in doing that, he created an element of uncertainty in the church. They began to question not only Paul's authority, and if you question someone's authority, then you question what they say. Paul became very concerned about this. So he wrote another letter, 2 Corinthians. And this letter, as we go through even just this passage, to me this this passage is kind of like the hub of the whole letter. Um, He really wants this church to regain their confidence, their confidence in their salvation. Their confidence in who they are in Jesus. Because he knows if they can gain confidence in their salvation, perspective will begin to take shape in the other areas of their life. And so his goal is that there would be confidence that would grow within this church through their salvation. And I don't know about you, but you know, if you read history, I, I, we'd be hard-pressed to find another time in history when people needed to hear and claim the promises of God as desperately as they do today. I mean, the overwhelming emotion felt by people today strikes me as uncertainty. There's uncertainty about the economy, about the political landscape, about the job situation, about terrorism, about the future of our children and the next generation. And this this uncertainty creates a lack of direction, a hesitancy, and an absence of confidence. And yet, even as uncertainty fills the air... God wants you and I to know we can live with confidence. The chapter alone, 2 Corinthians 5, begins. Paul talks about this confidence he has of having his home in heaven. I mean, verses 6 through 8 are rich. I mean, you and I can be confident that the resurrected body is part of God's new creation. We'll We'll have a body that is glorious and free from sin and its corruption. Be fitted for God for unbroken fellowship with him for all of eternity. And this obviously belongs to the grace we have in Christ. It's all together of God and from God. And the reason we have this confidence is not because of any self-attained measure, not because we got it together, and not because we bring anything to the table, but it's because of what Christ has done. And that when we received Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have confidence in the hope of heaven. That's what we talked about last week at the pact how you can enter into relationship with Jesus Christ. This passage has a lot to do about that, of how to live it out and how to have a confidence. And There's nothing like stability and spiritual confidence in the life of a saved man or woman. First of all, Paul talks about in this this passage the, the miracle of salvation. If you look at verse 14 and 15, the love of Christ controls us having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. You see, a guilty world's declared innocent. That's a miracle. We read again verse 15. He died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Verse 18. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, counting, not counting their trespasses against them. Verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of, of God in him. You see, the world died spiritually in Adam. So Romans 5.12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Adam became what theologians call a federal head spiritually. In Genesis 2.17, God had declared to Adam and Eve, as they ate the forbidden tree, that thou will surely die. Thus in Adam, all died. We're sinners by nature and by choice. Yet Jesus Christ, the second Adam, went to Golgotha, the place of death, and he died for us. So salvation's a miracle. It's a miracle because guilty people can find forgiveness in Christ. A guilty world is declared innocent. It's a miracle. And a guilty world is reconciled to God verse 18 through 19. It's one thing to be saved from sin, but we've been saved even more so for him. I mean, think about that. When you think about your salvation, isn't it tempting to think more about what we're saved from than what we're saved for? I think about we are saved for an eternal intimate relationship with the living God. We're not just saved from something, we're saved for something. We've been reconciled to God. And reconciliation involves salvation and a new life in Christ. Colossians 1:20 20 through 20-21 And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked, wicked works, yet now have been reconciled. Christ Became a sin offering, Paul says in verse 21. He became sin for us. He felt our pain and our shame. And yes, the miracle of God is salvation. The miracle of God is offering reconciliation to mankind. Paul talks about this miracle of salvation. You and I can have confidence because of what Christ did. It's a miraculous work of Christ in saving you and me. But Paul not only talks about this miracle in multiple spots, he talks about this force of salvation. And we see it right away in verse 14. And it's really one word. I could have had a one word sermon here. I mean, this word is rich. For the love of Christ controls us. Another translation says the love of, tri- of Christ compels us. That word "control" is a unique word. It really kind of means to hem in. We gain insight from other usages in Scripture. For example, there's an account in Scripture where a disciple is chained to guards on both sides of him, and those words "both sides" is the same word as the word "control" here. And what it means is is that disciple was hemmed in by the guards. He was controlled by the guards. Paul says this love of Christ hems him in. It hems us in. Maybe an example would be the Yangtze River in China. I've read about this river, and it says the early route, the early route of this river is unique. It's it's really narrow, it's got deep gorges, and the river flows with great force. It's deep right there. It's got great direction and energy. But if you go into later reaches of that river, it widens considerably. It becomes quite shallow and actually kind of just meanders along. It's quite muddy. What changes it? What's the difference in the different reaches of the river? Well, in earlier stages, it's hemmed in. And when it's hemmed in, there's greater drive, greater force, greater clarity, greater direction. And when we're hemmed in by the love of God, guess what comes into our life? Greater focus, greater clarity, greater direction, greater passion. Are you hemmed in by the love of Christ? Are you compelled, controlled by the love of Christ? When when we do, there's great direction in our life. Greater focus. People don't realize that they really won't have clear direction, they won't have clarity in their life, they won't have a greater passion if they're not hemmed in. And the degree to which they live passionately for God is in direct proportion to whether they're hemmed in to the love of God or not. Simply put, the direction, depth of life is a result of being hemmed in by the love of Christ. And if we can understand that the love of Christ hems us in, it will give us great confidence In living, that no matter what happens in this life, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Thus, we're hemmed in. There's great force, drive, and direction when we live that way. Paul knew that. You see, Paul, few of us are will have Paul's gifts. I mean, none of us are gonna have his opportunities, his platform, but all of us have the same message he received. We may have the same powerful motivation that he had, and that you and I can properly live with confidence that the love of Christ compels us. Love of Christ compelled Paul because he understood that while we were still sinners, Christ had dem- God had demonstrated His love for us in Christ's death and resurrection. The love of God in Christ was unique. And by unique, I mean exactly the same way that the power of God transcends any human power and that the wisdom of God transcends any human wisdom. God's love transcends any human love. This incredibly gracious love has no strings attached. It does not say, I'll love you if you clean your life up first. I love you if you'll follow A, B, C, and then if you can do that and do it perfectly, then we'll talk about love It's an unconditional love. It's a love that certainly isn't wimpy or weak. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. matter of fact, it took Christ to the cross. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5 that Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us to make us righteous. And he says in that same passage that God no longer counts people's sins against, against them. Thus, it's his love that hems us in. We can have great confidence because of that. The root of the human problem is this dynamic of disease which operates within the soul and manifests itself. This ultimate disease is the problem and there's there's nothing human beings can do about it. But God demonstrated his incredible love when he took this initiative determined to do something about this sin problem that separated us from him. It was his love Paul says it's his love that compels him, that hems him in, that controls him. He goes on, though, to say it's not just that this love compels us, but it it brings great confidence, it brings a serious commitment. In other words, it manifests itself. It's one thing to say I'm hemmed in and I'm controlled by the love of Christ, but how does it manifest itself? Paul gives us a glimpse of some ways it does. He says Christ's love compels us, but if you look at verse 14, the verse goes on, thus having concluded. Love of Christ hems him in, thus I'm convinced of some things. I'm convicted of some things, Paul says. The love of Christ compels us, having concluded. What? Love of Christ hemmed him into a solid conviction. Os Guinness once wrote, the prob- one of the problems in our contemporary culture is that sentiment has taken the place of conviction. You'd probably agree with that, wouldn't you? Sentiment has taken the place of conviction. And one of the reasons sentiment has a tendency to take the place of conviction is that sentiment is nowhere near as challenging or as costly as conviction. You might remember the story of three whales that were trapped under the ice in Alaska. All kinds of money was raised. The media covered the story in minute detail. Rescue equipment was shipped, flown in from around the world. People volunteered to help. Now I don't have anything against whales. But what bothered me was this. At the very same time that those whales were demanding so much attention and so much help, There were tens of thousands of people in the Horn of Africa starving. Where was the help for them? I mean, sure, maybe there was a a few bucks tossed their way but something. But you see, being sentimental about the whales didn't cost a lot. But when there's sentiment about the starving children in Africa the conviction that was needed to really help wasn't there. It was just sentiment. You see, there's a marked degree of sentimentality in the church. We need conviction. We need to be hemmed in to a solid conviction, not a sweet sentiment. Now notice the conviction that Paul was hemmed into. His conviction was that Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. They should live for Christ. That's what he was hemmed into. He was hemmed into that solid conviction. And he's working very logically toward toward his conviction. You see, he's saying if it's true that Christ died for all, then there's a sense that those in Christ have died. If it is true that all died in Christ, then that is either the end of them, or they've been raised to life with Christ. Christ. And that's a couple, a month ago, we memorized a verse from Galatians. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. You see, I'm dead. And dead men don't walk. Only people who are alive now walk. And Paul says, I'm alive. we have saying that multiple times this morning. That we're alive, we're new in Jesus. We're new creation in Christ. And Paul's building upon this solid conviction that if you're in Christ, You've died. But that's not the end of it. His conviction is that those in Christ have died, but now they're new. They're alive in Christ. And that he's hemmed into that conviction. That he has been crucified with Christ. And the life he lives, he does not live in end of himself. He lives because Christ lives in him. That's the conviction. He's absolutely, totally convinced of this inescapable fact are you are you hemmed into that solid conviction that Christ lives in me I'm a new creation my old self is dead that 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 old part of me that longed to feed the monster of sin that's dead yes we still battle but I'm new Paul's hemmed into that solid conviction I hope you are as well to me it it seems one of the ways the gospel can be abused in churches is that people feel they have the freedom to ask Christ to die for their self-indulgences. Words, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to indulge my flesh. Jesus, would you die for that? It's going to keep feeding it. I'm going to do what I want. Jesus, would you die for them sins? And we kind of missed the point. We died so we could live a new life. Not live for the self-indulgences. Paul's hemmed into this solid conviction that he died in Christ, but he's made alive. It's a new life. You see, Paul says we're looking for transformed lives. We're thinking in terms of real conversion. Thinking in terms of people in Christ walking away from their old life and living in this newness of life. Being solidly convinced that we have no freedom to live like we used to. We have only freedom to to live as new creations in Christ because we're hemmed in by the love of God. The new creation or the new man desires to serve God. The new creation or new man desires to give, to use their gifts, to attend church, to tell others It's what the new man desires. This new creation has no allegiance to sin, it's anxious to serve God. And I know that there's a battle. I get it. We have flesh that rears itself like an ugly, ugly dog, always nipping at our heels. It's always there challenging us. I get it. Fights the new creation. But don't quit. Be hemmed into a solid conviction. You have the power to live out this new life in Jesus. The old part of us that does have an attitude that does not desire obedience You know that before you were in Christ, there was a part of you that resented anyone telling you how to live. You resisted someone telling you to die to your passions and desires and dreams. But then Jesus came in, and his love transformed your life and turned those desires for passion and control of your own life to now a passion and desire to submit and live for Jesus, Paul said, I'm, I'm hemmed into that conviction. That, that's what happened. And what was it that hemmed him in? It's the love of God. That's what controls him and compelled him. But as I said, this manifested itself in some specific ways. This, this new nature manifested itself. So Paul says, be confident. And then says that confidence manifests itself in being active. How? Well, the text tells us, verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconcile us to himself through Christ. There's a miracle of salvation, but he gave us something. He gave us a ministry of reconciliation. In other words, we have confidence in our salvation. We have confidence we're hemmed in, hemmed in by the love of God. And this love of God hems us into a solid conviction, but also hems us into a serious commitment. And that serious commitment is to live out our faith. It's to, it's to live out the calling that we have of being involved in a ministry of reconciliation, of serving what Christ has called us to do. He's given us a ministry, a service of reconciliation, and we might be tempted to say, okay, I have a ministry of reconcil- reconciliation. What do I say to people? He says, Paul says, good thing you ask, because I've also given you a word of reconciliation. It's called the gospel. Your ministry And your service is to take that word and bring it into your sphere of influence. You might be tempted to say, well, what does that look like? Okay, I got the word of reconciliation, and I'm supposed to go into the place I work, in my neighborhood, what does that look like? Paul says, glad you to ask. Look at verse 20, I've made you an ambassador. An ambassador. It's the word he chooses. He chose it Intentionally. So Paul says, we're hemmed in by a serious commitment. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors, though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What's an ambassador? An ambassador lives in a country other than her homeland. She lives in that foreign country in order to represent the government at home. She does not propagate a personal message, but simply communicates the message communicated to her. And that ambassador does not seek to do nothing that would infringe on the nature and the character of the home country. And the analogy is so obvious, it hardly needs application. But one of the great needs today is to produce men and women who make a serious commitment based on those convictions and conclusions... And this commitment means living as representatives of the age to come in a fundamentally alien territory of this present evil age. Those who are committed to the cause march through time as if they represent eternity. They live on earth representing heaven. They live among a people who don't love God to give them the vision of God. And the command, they think, in terms of the spiritual, not of the material. You see what happens... When we become ambassadors, it's really quite simple. What Paul says, you've been hemmed in by the love of God. And because you're so compelled by the love of God, you make a serious commitment to live out what he wants you to do. And that is, he gives all of us, every Christian here, a service of reconciliation. He gives us the word of reconciliation, the gospel, and then he says, you're an ambassador, take it to foreign turf, and take this message so you can help transform that which is alien towards God. and So we've been given a ministry. And who are those who carry out that ministry? Those who've been hemmed in by the love of God. I have a great desire to see more people understand the love of Christ in such a way that they are hemmed in and motivated by solid convictions. That Christ died for all, and I died for Him, or died with Him. I'm no longer, you're no longer free to live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again for us. I'm also anxious to see people in our churches arrive at this striking conclusion that I'm no longer free to look at people from a human point of view. But I'm to see them as Christ sees them. And I'm trusting that more and more we'll begin to see ourselves as ambassadors for Christ and come to a serious commitment that sees God as glorified in their lives and his kingdom when you and I live out the calling in our lives to be ambassadors. What does it take? It takes people rightly motivated. It takes people compelled, hemmed in by the love of God, who rightly understand that we've died, but we're new creation in Christ. This morning, are you hemmed into a deep conviction that you've died and your life is now hidden in Christ, that you're new creation? Are you hemmed in that conviction? Are you hemmed into the serious commitment that you've been called to be an ambassador, not just to float through this life aimlessly. And while the world around us might lack direction and clarity and be meandering through life, the Christian isn't to live that way. We're to live with such drive and such force and such clarity and such depth that results from being hemmed in by the love of God. That's, that's the reality of what Christ wants to do in our lives. It is his love that compels us. Let's pray. Lord God, what a, what a passage. I, I smile at it. I, I tear up at it. I, I'm so motivated by it. It cheers my spirit. It challenges me on so many levels. I'm probably not alone, even as my brothers and sisters sit here and we we gather around it. We, we're we're probably thinking many of those things. The miracle of being saved by you, the miracle of given a new life, the confidence that brings us—it's amazing. In a world filled with such uncertainty and such doom, we have Christians have a confidence that transcends this time in this place. And we can only praise you for that, Jesus. We can only thank you. And how do we live? Might we live for the glory of your name? Might we continually be captured and captivated by your love? And Lord, might that love so control us and hem us in, God, that we live with a deep, solid conviction that we're new in you, that we're alive in you, And Lord, might that be a serious commitment that comes that we're ambassadors for you in really what seems like foreign turf, foreign soil. As we're surrounded by those who don't love you and have a standard that's totally, totally set apart from you. So God, help us, again, to be captivated more by your love. Lord, help us to live out with confidence your call in our life. Help my brothers and sisters this day, this week, to live it out. In your strength, in your power, so we could say at the end of each day this week that we lived with the conviction that we're new in you. And we live with the commitment that we're ambassadors. And that we loved you. And we loved people well. Might that be something that's true of all of us as we lay our head on the pillow at night. We know God as we live like that individually and corporately. You, our King, will be praised. You'll be glorified. You'll be magnified. There's no other name we want to magnify but you, Jesus. It's your name we pray. Amen.